Hello and welcome back to Talks and Climate, a series of conversations about climate change and data science, with world leading scientists, founders, and business leaders. The following is a dialogue with Christopher Christian, he's head of Spatial Finance Initiative at Oxford Sustainable Finance Group, also the head of Innovation and Impact at the UK Centre for Green Finance and Investment. Today, the topic is about spatial finance, the integration of geospatial data into financial decision making to account for climate risk in bottom-up way. We also have a good friend Harris Rahman joining us today from London. Harris has a background in economics and experience working in investment bank. He's currently an economist at the startup, estimating the valuation impact of the climate transition risk at the global market, and he's a Schwarzman scholar. I met Chris at one of the events by CGFI where he was and the is leading the innovation impact at the UK Center for Green Finance and Investment. Uh, we call it CGFI. And while he's taking another important job at Oxford, the head of spatial finance initiative at the Oxford Sustainable Finance Group. Uh, so many of the audience uh, is if you're from UK, like definitely be really familiar with this fantastic research group. Uh, and if, another fun fact, um, Christopher is really good at events. I don't know how he can manage to get like a <laughs> hundred plus audiences go to Oxford in person, like for an event for many times. So we might hear more from him um, today. And uh, it's it's a great pleasure also to have Harris, uh, alumni from Schultzman Scholar, to join me to co-host this episode. Uh, so Harris is now based in London. Uh, he has... He's like one of the person in my life that I met, like to make all the jokes with the economist language. <laughs> and, and he's now uh, doing the economics no, research. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll hear both of them today. Um, and I'll let Harris to introduce uh, himself for a bit more details. And why don't we start from Harris? Great, thank you so much for the kind introduction, Karen. Um, so yes, uh, post joining the, the, the Schwarzen program, I um, uh, got some experience doing investment banking and then afterwards joined a startup as first employee uh, that was trying to estimate the climate transition impacts on global public equities. So pretty much automating uh, scenario analysis at a, at a global scale. Perfect. Thank you, Harris. Uh, and then we will save the questions to the second part. Um, but just to begin with, today we have a focus uh, talking about the spatial finance uh, and then the integration of geospatial data into the financial decision making, uh, especially from like a bottom up way. Uh, and then uh, we're going to hear uh, well some examples and uh, case studies. I know like Christopher just hosted a couple of conferences at Oxford. Uh, and then did the demos, uh, or, or did some application uh, demos from startup, from research groups. Um, but just to begin with, um, I guess like many audience might also be curious, like how and then what brought you uh, came to this space, uh, and then can you, can you tell us more about your life before Oxford? My life before Oxford. Okay, well, thank you, Karen. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for the kind words of your introduction. I have to say to all the listeners that while I may be good at organizing events, Karen is very good at attending events. So she's really, she pops up everywhere um, and she's very good at attending. 
Um, but my life, my life before joining Oxford um, was very much in kind of the geospatial satellite data space. Uh, I studied business engineering back in Belgium, where I'm from. Uh, worked a bit in um, fast-moving consumer goods sector, but then I moved to the UK to work for the European Space Agency, uh, particularly looking at kind of downstream applications of satellite data. I kept doing this work uh, more for the UK and the satellite applications catapult, working for several years, looking at different industries and sectors where satellite data can be better used and inform decision-making, particularly around sustainability uh, issues. Uh, and then over time, I got interested in, in green finance, sustainable finance, and how these data sets that exist in the kind of the space, but more broadly environmental climate science space could be quite relevant for financial institutions that have green agendas, uh, but they constantly um, complain about the lack of data or the lack of adequate data. So there was a clearly potential to merge the two and, 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 and bridge that gap. And that's how I ended up in Oxford working on this agenda uh, over the last couple of years. And then the, the center uh, Christopher mentioned, Sustainable Finance Group at Oxford. Um, can, you, can you tell us more about the background of this group uh, and then especially the working group that you're leading uh, and how we, how we define this term spatial finance? Sure, so I work at a research group at the University of Oxford called the Oxford Sustainable Finance Group. Um, we, I think we've been set up over 10 years ago now, um, but the kind of the, the, the main vision, the ambition is doing world-class research and, and capacity building and teaching around how to align the financial system with global sustainability. So how to bring those together. Um, we work on a range of topics. So we work a lot on transition finance and transition risk. Uh, we have a whole group of colleagues working on that. We're increasingly doing work on transition plans and what does a good transition plan look like and how do you assess the credibility of transition plans? So that's a whole piece of, of, of work. Uh, we're doing a lot of work on data and analytics. So we're leading this, the UK Center for Greening Finance and Investment, which you mentioned, which is a multi-university uh, collaboration here in the UK with the idea to mainstream climate and environmental science in financial decision-making, particularly working also with financial regulators. Um, in the team in Oxford, we also have some machine learning and, and AI data scientists. And then I lead our work on spatial finance. So spatial finance is all around, how do you make better use of, um, I guess, geospatial data more broadly, but equally asset level data and kind of location context specific information to better uh, assess um, sustainability risks, impacts, and opportunities. Uh, and the whole, I guess, point of spatial finance, right, it may sound novel and complicating. In, in, in a way, it's quite a common sense approach is, is that if you want to really understand sustainability issues properly, uh, you need to understand them in a context. You need to understand where you're operating, where the company invested in is operating, where they're sourcing from, what's the socioeconomic indicators there, what, um, are the exposures to environmental, climate, uh, nature, uh, losses, etc. at that specific location. A lot of these issues are inherently location-specific, so if you don't take a location-specific, context-specific uh, lens to this and build that picture in a bottom-up way, it's really hard to build a meaningful picture that allows you as a financial institution to take any, any useful action. So that's what we've been promoting for the last couple of years, really to build that bottom-up picture using asset-level data as well as spatial data sets. Um, uh, yeah, to, to understand sustainability issues. 
Um, I, I can hop in here for a question. Um, so I, I think it would be really interesting to explore um, uh, the relevance of geospatial um, integration and financial decision-making now, um, considering that uh, spatial science has been integrated in the past. Um, do you notice an excitement that's happening now? And it would be interesting to explore what are the key drivers? Yeah, absolutely. So in the broader financial system, the use of geospatial, I mean, geospatial data has been used um, for a while, if you can, let's call it like that. And But, but, but mainly we've seen it adopted in uh, insurance uh, and anything linked to natural catastrophe insurance um, or more broadly understanding exposures and kind of uh, you know, portfolio level uh, risk assessments. Um, we've also seen it used in commodities trading where uh, particularly from a satellite data perspective, a kind of early view on the ground on kind of the key either supply or demand hubs for certain commodities can help understand trends early on. So it gives you a, a competitive edge in terms of trading on the market. Uh, and, and it's really in these two cases that there's always been a business case, if you like. There's always been a, a clear kind of commercial business case to integrate these data sets. What we've seen now in the last five years, if you like, with the advent of you know, with a massive growth of green finance, interest in green finance, um, claims that are being made and, 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 and initiatives that are being set up uh, to combat climate change or now to combat nature loss and, and all these kind of things. Um, you're seeing that the demand is becoming a lot broader. So there is a, a need for data analytics to understand climate risk, transition and physical, nature dependencies, impacts, uh, other social, uh, risk impacts, again, depending on which initiative or which which topic you're interested in. And in here, a lot of these are going to be spatial. And we're seeing that, um, you know, this constant demand from across banks, asset managers, uh, asset owners, different types of asset managers and insurers, you know, in, in a broader sense that they're already using it, we're, we're really seeing that drive demand, even if, if even if not expli explicitly, implicitly for spatially derived insights. Um, and so I think that whole kind of green finance space is really driving the uptake uh, of this. Though many people either don't realize they're using spatial data because it, it's processed in, in, in various ways, which is fine. I mean, it's not the point to use spatial data because it's spatial data. The point is to use it in the right way uh, and in a context specific way. Um, but more and more we're seeing, yeah, we're seeing these these drivers as well as then the regulatory drivers on green finance and reporting requirements, greenwashing stuff um, are all contributing to that. But it's really the, yeah, the sustainable finance, green finance agenda pushing this forward. Thank you. Um, and then I will just want to following up on this, I think to take a step back, uh, and then we, we do see the trend of discussions like you mentioned now become, uh, for example, recently uh, tensions on the biodiversity measurement uh, and then for different purposes to drive the needs for the spatial data. Uh, but question to me uh, a lot is like the additionality, like what we know, uh, what kind of uh, additionality this sort of new technology information source is actually bringing the impact. Uh, and then my sense of like navigation um, that you can correct me around, like I think for compliance uh, monitoring uh, makes lots of sense. Uh, like we see the uh, development of so-called digital MRV, like using satellite to monitor the development of uh, what the progress of deforestation stuff. So regulation is one. Uh, and the second might be like 
adding the alternative source of information of the data set, we can measure the climate issue. Um, but what else like, we haven't mentioned, you think uh, the additionality is about? So I think one of the interesting character, or like the, yeah, I guess characteristics of, of geospatial remote sensing data sets is that it's inherently complementary to reported information. So the way kind of financial data typically flows and particularly the way it's come around anything to do with sustainability is investors rely on what companies disclose. That's why there's so much uh, emphasis now on sustainability disclosure standards, frameworks, the whole lot. You know, the whole debate is around disclosure, disclosure rather than what do you do with the data or what does the data tell us and therefore how do we integrate the data into you know, the range of uh, use cases that exist going from credit risk management to due diligence of your clients to reporting to uh, you know some of the other stuff that you mentioned Karen so geospatial remote sensing data given it comes from a completely different source either public or commercial satellite providers or the scientific community who has processed various different data sets and put them together in a spatially you know especially explicit indicator like a biodiversity intactness index or uh, you know a threatened species index or whatever means that this information inherently comes from someone else somewhere else than what companies are reporting so it's it's an alternative source of information it's complementary uh, and it therefore can give you different insights and or allow you to validate verify what the companies are saying or not or if you're not reporting at all to build an initial picture even if it's rough about what they may be doing or may not be doing in certain instances so i think that's also in terms of the relevance that you mentioned, Harris, I think that's as a value proposition of the of the type of tools and data sets. I think that's quite interesting. So yeah, combine you, you obviously you, you, you can't do everything with spatial data, you can't do everything with disclosure data, you're gonna need a bunch of different data sources, but it's it's quite a relatively readily available, albeit uh, untapped or kind of not very well translated yet, uh, data source. That's really interesting. And um, looking at the current landscape of integrating this spatial finance data into financial decision making, um, where do you think we are at right now? Do you do you feel like the majority is being adopted in institutions that have this um, spatial finance and analytic capacity? Um, where, what is adoption looking like at this moment? So that's a very good question and i think ad adoption is still relatively patchy the way i'm seeing adoption i guess is along two lines on the one hand you're seeing within the financial institutions be they the big asset managers or the big asset owners or the big banks that tend to have either bigger sustainability teams or bigger data science teams more broadly you're starting to see geospatial data being integrated into r d into these kind of functions uh, within larger institutions uh, it's very much kind of in the larger institution side um and it may inform a bunch of internal stuff but it's, it's definitely not yet integrated into traditional workflows across most functions on the other hand you're seeing that the big uh, financial data providers you know like your SPs, your moody's uh, your msci's etc they've all been acquiring you know a few years ago they were acquiring all the, the traditional esg rating and data providers now, the last couple of years, they've been acquiring a whole bunch more specialists, either physical risk uh, data providers, um, some cap modelers, uh, a few geospatial companies even. So you're seeing that the, the intermediary space 
uh, is embracing uh, or is, is starting to adopt and acquire a lot of these geospatial data science technologies. So that will find its way eventually then also in mainstream and smaller financial institutions. I think what is still uh, missing is a good sense of understanding of what the data means and or what to do with it. Uh, I think particularly like physical climate risk is an interesting one. It's like, it's quite complex. It has to do with um, understanding a whole range of projections of future climate predictions. If your climate model is going to, uh, going to um, project different types of changes at different locations at different times. So interpreting that is hard. Getting the data for that right is hard. There's a lot of uncertainties associated with it, which you need to understand and appreciate. But that capability or that skill is not necessarily present yet in both the data provider side, as well as in the financial institution side who need to interpret it. So we're seeing adoption, but it's not yet at a point that it can be adopted or that it can be used effectively or usefully in many of the UK use cases it's hoping to support. Um, I wanna, I wanna it's, it's really nice you mentioned this, I wanna jump in here, uh, cause I recently moved back to China and then uh, previously I was at uh, Imperial College Center for Climate Finance Center. Um, and like we have like a what sort of data uh, and then what to use it for. But I think another thing is how we deal with the data. Um, and then just at the conference we hosted uh, the session of Frontier Technology, uh, we noticed like there's a trend. Uh, Harris just also mentioned this earlier, uh, the open source format or group uh, like dealing with or accessing the uh, climate information. So for example, there's a group called OS Climate. Uh, so a couple of financial institutions come together to think about how they can share, cross-share the information and to build on projects uh, on top of it. Um, and then to compare, uh, I think like my learning takeaways uh, from UK and now in China, I think uh, one thing is this uh, this beginning of uh, trying to find new ways of understanding climate risk, uh, like you mentioned, uh, from the data perspective. Uh, but there's other way is how you can scale that solution or uh, drive down the so-called green payment, uh, so the solutions that you build can actually be adopted, uh, not the regulation perspective, but like commercial sectors are actually embracing this uh, for a uh, for for motivated enough reason. Uh, and then for that perspective, like in China, now it's a little bit uh, don't see that yet. Uh, although you do see the data technology is being built, uh, like you can do. Lots of innovations now, uh, like on the cloud, on the different tours, like large energy models stuff. Um, so based on all of those, I just want to see, uh, seek for your your recent uh, discovery. What do you think are the key topics happening right now, uh, like around you? Uh, so most recently, I think I, I heard about how we can access or understand asset level data. So is there any new development since then? Uh, and then you you would recommend us to look into? So, yeah, I, I guess I'm going to answer two parts. So I think the first one is, is as you talked you know, about the commercial opportunities beyond regulatory pressures. Obviously, if you have direct, clear commercial uh, business models, opportunities, you know, you don't need regulatory pressure to drive adoption. But so far on the kind of the use of, of spatial data, I've only seen it limited to the two examples I mentioned earlier on commodity trading and kind of um, insurance because there there's an operational driver and or a direct uh, competitive edge for trading. 
what obviously we hope to we all hope to see is when we talk about no green finance products and you know proper you know it's a bit like you know for instance carbon offsets that 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 you referred to earlier um we want to make sure that if someone buys a carbon credit that is based on forestry reforestation or forest protection you know all these things that it's legit that it's um uh um, that, that it keeps existing that that you know that, that we're actually getting what we're paying for so we're seeing a lot of startups and companies active in the space of the digital monitoring reporting verification linking into carbon credits uh carbon offsets to bring transparency in an opaque market with the idea that higher quality credits will drive a higher price uh, because you're more certainty that you have actually bought what you thought you were buying um so there's there's some of that coming online uh more broadly i think you could you could scale or there's potential obviously for these data sets to be scaled up to other types of green finance instruments where there is either a promise through a kpi linked to a bond or sustainability or whatever or if you're selling an impact product um to actually in an independent way verify or, or track or demonstrate impact to your clients uh etc but that i don't think the market is there yet more broadly in terms of impact products or green finance products that actually want to do something more exciting beyond we're issuing green bond we promise you we're going to spend it on these green projects um and then i don't report on it anymore or no one actually cares whether you spend it or not because you bought a green bond you feel great you tell your clients that you bought a green bond etc so there's like and un- un- unless that value chain becomes more serious itself as well beyond the pure um you know green washing greenwashing a bit or you know just value flagging type stuff uh then then there's not going to be a business model for actually more expensive but more higher integrity products uh, but hopefully we'll get there eventually uh, and until then i think we're seeing regulation push it including the greenwashing regulation etc coming online in the uk that is causing companies to be a lot more cautious to call things green and therefore if they do they should be really confident they're green and therefore these technologies will be taken off more that's what i hope and um, on the asset level data side um the that this kind of and asset level data has been around like whatever you want to call it like information about where companies assets are has been around for many industries for a while it's typically information that has been um, sold or collected or provided particularly for that industry to drive marketing purposes or sales purposes you know industry specific insights rather than to help a financial institution understand environmental issues at the asset level so there's a lot of data that it's kind of out there there's a lot of asset level data that's reported also for governments it's just not put in the right like it's not fit for purpose or not translated or put in a format that makes for works for financial institutions so that's some of the work that we're trying to do in Oxford, trying to build open asset databases for high impact industries that have not got good asset level data for financial sector use um, and definitely not in the open space. So we've got a data set for cement, steel, we're looking at pulp and paper, petrochemicals, waste management, other sectors. Um, and the idea being that if you make the asset level data openly available, at least for some of these key industries, you allow others startups, consultancies, big companies, financial institutions themselves, 
to build on top of that asset level data and combine it with their own assumptions, combine it with their own data sets, be they spatial or not, it doesn't actually matter. Be it with their own models on transition risk or physical risk or whatever, and build their own bottom up picture. But you start from the same transparent kind of base layer of this, this plant owned by this company sits here and has this capacity. Therefore, you, you can roughly say how much is going to produce or emit or those kind of things. Um, so that's some of the stuff we're trying to do. And we're seeing more both the kind of big data providers and a lot of the the innovative startups coming online, building on asset level data to drive um, transition risk insights, physical risk insights. Now with the whole TNFD coming online, sorry. So the task force for nature related financial disclosures and the growing interest in nature related risks and impacts. Uh, the TNFD framework starts with you know, locate your assets, locate your supply chains, evaluate where they are. So it's going to be front and center of that new wave or use set of use cases and applications on 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 uh, in sustainable finance. So that's definitely the space to to watch uh, for this. But Harris, actually, I would love to learn, to hear from you on in your experience in both investment banking and now at the startup you've joined on any use of asset level asset level data in particular. I would imagine maybe more of use than spatial data per se, but yeah absolutely what have you seen what have you been using that'd be cool <laughs> actually i was just about to ask you a question related to that so no no i'm asking you first <laughs> um so i think so from from the um buy side um your the initial set that you have is uh not that extensive in terms of the asset level data uh, you really have to it, it's quite proprietary you have to actually engage with your potential target companies to get that sort of level of data. Mm. So prior to that, when you're screening assets for potentially, you know, purchasing it or whatever, um, this sort of data that's available is really not that much. We're talking like the headquarters of the country and maybe even the geographic um, segmentation of revenue. But that's, I mean, maybe you can use that as a proxy, but kind of not really at the same time for understanding actually where uh, manufacturing capacity is. So it's a big gap. And that's why I find the um, the open sourcing of uh, assets very interesting. Um, I mean, I'm not on the transaction side anymore, uh, but on, on the climate estimation side, it's incredibly relevant. And the uh, geographic segmentation of revenue doesn't really doesn't really fill in that gap. However, um, the ownership of assets, I can imagine, if we're talking about estimating the impacts of a supply chain, the ownership of assets probably only tells you part of the story, depending on how vertically integrated the company is. So in, in your experience, how have you been able to take it a step further to understand what the full supply chain impacts are? It's an excellent question. It's very hard, and therefore, it's a step we haven't taken yet. So we, we, where we are at the moment is kind of to, yeah, on a sector by sector basis, map out the key polluting and producing assets. So you get your scope one for those industries basically without looking at uh, the supply chains. We've had we've had some colleagues, but it's it's kind of like prototyping site work that's trying to map either. Um, supply chains of which farm are producing to which abattoir or which uh, which limestone quarry is providing to which cement plant. 
and but that's typically been based on kind of machine learning or statistical models. Um, so we haven't done much in-field validation, but that's kind of uh, nascent and prototyping. But what, yeah, so what we've been focusing on so far is the kind of the key production act, uh, uh, production assets and a sector by sector basis. And we're doing it on a sector by sector basis rather than starting from a company or a listed equity kind of um, realm or portfolio perspective, because then if you know roughly where all the production assets are in an industry, you know, which ones either are older or which ones are bigger and which ones are using which are, you know more polluting or less polluting technologies. You can map them against each other compared with certain sectoral transition pathways and actually understand the stranded asset risk within a sector, given you know whatever you think will strand uh, and, and map it out that way. So that's why we've been doing it, it like that. And yeah, um, the supply chain question is a very challenging and unanswered one, but I'm sure lots of great researchers I'm still to meet are working on it. So if they're listening, reach out. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I find this so fascinating that how this area is uh, being, I mean, has been developed. Uh, and then just to general background for our audience, uh, which mentioned about asset data. So there's a really good report I highly recommend it. Uh, from Christopher's group, uh, it's called Every Year they, they Publish State and then Trend of Spatial Finance. Uh, so this year, uh, there's, a, there's a graph that basically makes segments of the three layers of data. Uh, we talked about the asset data, uh, including location, ownership, stuff, production. Uh, and then above like two layers, uh, the observed data, like we can see from the radar or different like GOG emission, I mean, thing. Uh, and then there's a, the third one is the model data. Uh, so like climate hazard, biodiversity. Uh, I think it's a really fair like category of uh, information happening in this area. Uh, and another tough issue, uh, I'm not sure if we have an answer here, uh, is the taxonomy or how we communicate on, agree on a standard of how we uh, describe the information here. Because uh, I, I find it really struggle, like uh, when I was working on uh, projects at the Imperial College, like with, with some financial institutions, a lot of approximations uh, and then it's really hard to find like a uh, guideline or or like for example when we do the um, mortgage carbon emission uh, and then come down to the level of how you can estimate the emission for a mortgage uh, it usually go down to like how you can make calculation on the uh, well to define the location uh, and then find the corresponding emission factors sort of thing uh, so I think it also come to back to the topic which is cover like asset data um, and another thing I think is that how much is the effort put into to find the precise information about asset data worth? Uh, is it worth like to to get to the the ultimate well the ultimate goal? Uh, I think is to have better understanding access of the risk or, or like build a language you can describe the climate risk, uh, either physical or transition. Um, I guess my question here is like uh, where you see this area will be developed in the future as the regulation is catching up. Um, and uh, especially in the UK, uh, what would you recommend us to read about uh, in this spatial of the regulation? Well, I would recommend you to read up on asset level data. You have to be really committed to this niche of niche topics to, to even be <laughs> wanting to reading more upon this. Um, but I mean, other than reading our reports, so thanks for promoting them, Karen, and just I want to, Say I'm, I'm writing them every two years and every year. So 
just don't put too much pressure on me, please. Um, but the, the, I think the on the kind of the harmonization standardization side, on the asset level data, spatial data for finance side, there's, there's nothing there yet. There's a few institutions that are working on it, including ourselves. There's a few NGOs working or been pushing on it for a few years, including WWF. Um, but I'm, 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 I'm guessing, and particularly again with the whole nature finance interest in the TNFD and the explicit notion of you have to start by locating your operations and your supply chains, that that could well be the next step or be part of future um, harmonization, standardization frameworks uh, in, in this space. Um, but, but so far, not seeing too much on that yet. One, in terms of, I guess, a good resource, if you want to look into the power of asset level data is an NGO called Global Energy Monitor. So they are really the ones who pioneered in 15 years ago on the kind of the collection, the standardization of um, just mapping. I think they started with coal-fired power stations, like where are you know, countries or companies uh, proposing new coal-fired power stations? And they've been methodically mapping those uh, since 2007, 2008. Uh, they've expanded their work to a bunch of other energy intensive sectors, but they have therefore years and years and years of experience of building and standardizing uh, these databases. It's informed numerous uh, NGO work, policy work, financial institution. It's available on the Bloomberg terminal, I believe. Various others have also been using it. It's open source. Um, and it's really driven transparency and allowed in a way, it's also allowed the work that, that we've been doing in the group. And so the group started uh, through research on stranded assets based on, uh, for instance, this open coal-fired power station uh, data sets. So it's, 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 it's driven an awful lot of, of research and, and resources in that. They're now actually doing uh, a lot of work also on the steel sector. And so for instance, they're comparing them. Um, or they're doing a lot of, 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 of thought leadership and collaborating with other NGOs. And what does it mean if you, uh, if you would refit your steel plant now, which is coal-fired uh, power, it's not coal-fired power, like, but using coke, whatever, like a, a coal-based steel-making process. If you refit now, you're, you're stuck in that for 25 years, meaning this company or that will miss X transition uh, targets, etc. So they have an awful lot of uh, really rich content, really interesting analysis, really interesting collaborations. Uh, we've been working with them and I'm very, always very impressed by their work. Um, so I would recommend anyone with interest in this niche of niche topics to uh, check out Global Energy Monitor and, and read up on what they've been doing and how influential they've been, because it's really their, yeah, their work and their transparency and their, their partnerships have driven this agenda forward quite a lot. Um, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's really insightful. And actually, just going back to where, where we are currently in terms of, because you mentioned greenwashing earlier, um, I think um, if if you haven't you know played around with geospatial data sets yet and just looked at the images, you it's quite easy to fall into this trap of thinking that uh, geospatial data is the panacea for 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 the uh, for the greenwashing era that we're in currently. And um, also picking up on an article that that uh, you co-wrote on the uh, the Gartner hype cycle. Do you think? <laughs> Do you think that sort of applies and to give um, the audiences just context, this is the idea that you have uh, a trigger of technological innovation, it 
uh, there's a huge amount of excitement. It goes up to the peak of inflated expectations. It drops down into a trough of disillusionment and then recovers to a plateau productivity. Um, do you think that applies to the geospatial revolution in in spatial in, in green finance currently? Um, and or, or do you think it is the panacea? Well, it'd be easy if it was a panacea, but I don't think the panacea exists. I think this will probably the Gartner the Gartner hype cycle would probably apply here as well. Uh, but I think I mean being realistic, I mean we talk about it a lot, but at the end of the day, it's still niche and nascent. Uh, it's not it's not like we see AI at the moment, right? Everything has to be AI. AI is going to power everything. Everyone needs to talk about AI. Everyone needs to say they're doing AI to be taken. Maybe not taking seriously, but everyone now needs to say they're doing AI. No one knows why or what for or what they're actually doing, but everyone's doing AI. So we're not yet there yet with spatial finance. If only, you know, then I can say, you know, what's the spatial finance? Everyone needs to do, wants to do spatial finance. So I think spatial finance, if you want to define it like that, as is still in the in the up and people see it and they can think, get really excited. And then obviously it's going to go down as any technology uh, in in, you know, over you know overinflated expectations and then people realize they can't actually do as much with it as you want because in the end it's just a picture that tells you you can see what's happening the attribution of what you're seeing versus who is responsible is very hard to do for instance etc etc but again it's like in context right it's an additional source of information it's combined with other things um but it can very easily be overhyped um i wish it was already overhyped but i don't even think we're we're, we're there yet what we're seeing overall in the broader geospatial remote sensing uh, market where there's been an awful lot of commercial players coming online, commercial satellite data providers, and a lot of growth. If you see investment into kind of this, the the space tech ecosystem, there you're you're seeing that they're clearly on right. that, that 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 cycle. So from a kind of yeah. geospatial remote sensing data market, they're very much going through that cycle. So the application of that to green finance is going to go the same way, I think. But yeah, we're not we're not we're not as hyped yet. I, I mean, I, I could imagine that potentially the greenwashing could still occur if a corporate only releases um, their best data. Um, and and I guess maybe the tipping point is when investors have access to a platform that can actually say, hang on a minute, you're not showing us this part of your of your supply chain. Yeah, absolutely. I think greenwashing can occur anytime all the time. And again, one of the reasons this data or geospatial or remote sensing analysis can be valuable is as an investor, you could access it without having to rely on what the company is telling you or what the company tells you, right? So it's a, it's a third party data vendor. Uh, we can give you an additional view of what the company is saying is true. So if you just know a baseline of where the company operates um, and roughly what their supply chains or operations look like, you can build your own picture that you can then use to challenge a company. If a company only tells you or shows you even, you know, as you said, the best thing they're doing or look, you know, in this part of my supply chain, we're really helping or really doing something good, ignoring 90% of the supply chains that they're destroying. Then if you as a comp if you as an investor know roughly where they're all sourcing from or where their supply chains and assets are, you can go and acquire data sets or download data sets and spatial data sets from third parties do your own analysis and then challenge that company. So again, it's the it's the the data ownership in this case does not just sit with the company. So your information asymmetry can really be reduced significantly, assuming you know where the company operates and or so there's obviously you need a bit of information, but once you do, 
you can start to build a whole like quite a strong picture um on on particularly environmental stuff uh, obviously not everything but uh yeah it 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 has the potential to reduce information symmetry. Yeah, I ju just want to add on like I think they sometimes um the the focus on the precision of uh the measurement of uh emission or different stuff uh might be well there's something more important as well like consistency uh and comparable uh of course. Well, the same industry across different company or the one company, but over the course of years, uh, how the performance is like. Uh, and I, I think we see that in carbon emission, uh, like there's so many different softwares being built now, um, but also like we haven't been agreed on a single ways to measure like how the emission is going to be. And I guess the same for uh, other format of geospatial information leading us to. Um, and then finally, uh, I think going to the final part, uh, so back to Oxford. Uh, like this looks like really exciting work you've been working on. So, uh, can you share a bit more, like how the research group functions and how our audience might be able to get involved with any part of the work that you're working on? And how's life at Oxford, not doing a PhD, um, but working in a research institute? Well, thanks, Karen. Surely you know best what life's like at a research institute without doing a PhD. Um, but um, the. <laughs> The, so how people can get involved? So obviously all our publications are available online. Do feel free to read and download those or to reach out, I think our contact details are online as well. We run a bunch of programs on different themes. We often run a lot of events, as you mentioned at the beginning. So if you want to you know, work with us and bump into Karen while she attends our events, then you know, coming to these events is the perfect, is the perfect thing to do. Uh, but more broadly, like generally, we are very keen to engage with kind of anyone with an interest in the topic, be it on the technology or the user side, uh, because we, we and me in particular, I'm very interested in kind of the adoption, the impact that our research have beyond just writing a bunch of academic papers. So as you said, I'm, I'm, I'm in a research group at Oxford, I don't have a PhD, I'm not doing a PhD, so I kind of ended up there by accident in a way. Um, but I do like, and, 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 and what a lot of our colleagues are all driven by, is the passion to do applied and meaningful research, build open data sets and, and, and public goods that have an impact on policy or on practice and on the kind of, uh, you know, real things beyond purely, you know, we obviously do also write a bunch of research papers, but we very much want to see them applied in practice. And that's also a big part of my role is to make sure that we engage with financial institutions, we engage with data providers, we engage with technology providers and understand what's going on and that what we do is practitioner uh, relevant. So very open to 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 engage and collaborate with anyone with the same vision. Love to hear that. And then thank you for mentioning. And just to explain why am I uh, in so many different events. So, <laughs> um, so I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm with this, um, this UN Youth Envoy Office. Uh, so it's this really amazing office uh, under Secretary General. So every two years, they uh, kind of endorse 17 individuals in the sustainable development goals. Uh, so I'm the uh, climate one uh, and then from China. Uh, so over the past years and then in the coming years as well. So uh, I had a chance to to speak at many different um, jurisdictions, countries, and say, to see how the dialogue of climate change 
has been involved. Uh, and then now looking back, I think it's, it's such a um, incredible like development. Uh, this whole area uh, coming up uh, actually just in the past couple of years, uh, so many informations like knowledge being developed. Uh, and I think there's definitely even like inflation of inf information coming out, uh, the reports, the like publications uh, we do every day, um, but also that also produce the need, the demand for how the uh, data can be better utilized in practical case. Uh, so in practical case here, I also wanna hear for, uh, from Harris, uh, like the practical research, um, like from the very fundamental beginning, what, what brought you like uh, in the rapid hole of climate risk, uh, and then now like develop your <laughs> career like in the private sector, but doing like such a research uh, sort of work. And how uh, did you? <laughs> I like how you call it a rabbit hole, and it's there's there's certainly um, no short supply of bedtime reading. Um, that there, there is, um, I, I what I find quite exciting about the space is. Um, it doesn't take, there isn't a huge barrier to entry. Um, if, if you if you can understand like um, rough financial theory and have an interest in data science as well, um, to be able to understand and engage with a lot of these papers and methodologies. And it seems like there are always new methodologies coming out. Um, it's really exciting to be a part of such an evolving space. Um, so, yeah, I was quite lucky to be involved uh, developing the methodology for a, a, a startup. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's very exciting. It's very exciting to be a part of that story. Thank you both. Um, yeah, so it's so a final thing. Uh, we, we talked about like uh, geospatial finance, uh, life at Oxford, uh, and how to get involved with the workout speakers that working on. Uh, and uh, just to wrap up this uh, episode, um, I think the final message I want to hear from Christopher, like, um, what your focus are like in the coming year, uh, the upcoming top, COP twenty eight, especially, um, and then the most important things like you've been working on. We have a lot to do. I think uh, I'm not too involved with in things for COP this year, um, but I think what's what, what's next for us over the coming year is building more of these asset databases. So we want to build a global data set for the pulp and paper industry, petrochemicals and waste management subsectors. Uh, so hopefully we can publish some of those over the year. Uh, and then I think the other big thing is is, is also at Oxford, we're really building out our capacity around nature finance, nature dependency and impact analytics, which obviously is a massive overlap with the whole spatial finance side of things. So I'm really excited to see with the TNFG launch now how that's going and how we can push that agenda forward. Um, so I think these are two of my, on top of my to-do list, uh, well, I say to-do list with my colleagues who do a lot more than I do. I just talk on podcasts about our topic. Um, and just um, just for clarification, um, that, that data set on petrochemicals and waste management, um, mm -hmm. where is that going to be released? So we'll release it on our spatial finance website. Everyone can download it kind of free. They'll be open for commercial and non-commercial use. And then we're exploring kind of alternative dissemination channels as well. I think open source climate, Karen, which you mentioned earlier, hosts some of our data sets. Um, we've seen a bunch of the kind of traditional financial data providers also download 
uh, or data set and integrate into their own databases. So yeah, they'll be on our website and other places for people to download and play around with, innovate for a better world. I, I, I've definitely been in that category of downloading and playing around with it. Perfect. Good yeah. to hear. Download more. <laughs>